0: This show is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Charleston Coffee Roasters. Charleston Coffee Roasters painstakingly searches the world over for the highest quality coffee beans. They bring them home to Charleston, South Carolina, where slow roasting coaxes out their unique flavor. Along with their promise of great coffee, Charleston Coffee Roasters also pledges to help our planet and local communities.
1: Globally, they support sustainable farming practices, Locally, they partner with the South Carolina Sea Turtle Rescue Program. Visit their website, charlestoncoffeeroasters.com, and use the code Coffee with Friends, all lowercase, all one word, to get 20% off on all bagged coffees.
0: Seem to have a fascination with cold case deaths. Is there something you need to tell us?
2: <laughs> I uh, no. I think I'm like. I mean, cold cases, murder cases, are a hot thing right now. True crime is a hot thing right now. But I've always been interested in it. And since I was a little girl, my I used to go to my grandparents every Sunday for dinner. And my mother's only brother was a was a police officer. He was a detective. And later later on assistant chief of police in st pete and he would talk about cases that he was investigating and i was a big newspaper reader from you know from the time i could hold a newspaper and i was interested in crime and so i would read these crime stories and he would talk about cases and so that and i read nancy drew of course like every other girl my age
1: welcome to the friends and fiction writers block podcast four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us.
0: And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. I am Ron Block and I am beyond excited to welcome today's guest, Mary Kay Andrews, who some of you might know, I don't know. Mary Kay is the New York Times bestselling author of 30, yes, I said 30 novels, including The Homewreckers, The Santa Suit, The Newcomer, Hello Summer, Sunset Beach, The High Tide Club, The Weekenders, *Beach Town*, Save the Date, Ladies Night, Christmas Bliss, Spring Fever, Summer Rental, Fixer Upper, Deep Dish, Blue Christmas, Savannah Breeze, Hissy Fit, Little Bitty Lies, and Savannah Blues, all <laughs> along with one cookbook. The Beach House Cookbook. I love saying all those names. It's so cool. It's almost like a history of knowing you. She's a native of St. Petersburg, Florida, and she's earned a BA in journalism from the University of Georgia. After a 14-year career working as a reporter at newspapers, including the Savannah Morning News, the Marietta Journal, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, where she spent the final 10 years of her career, she left journalism in 1991 to write fiction, and we... I'm so glad you did. Me too. Welcome, Mary Kay Andrews.
2: Hi, Ron. How's it going?
0: Great, great. I'm so excited to talk to you about The home Homewreckers. I think I texted you right after I finished reading it. And I was like, you did it again. You did it again. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So congratulations on the book. And I know that we're recording before the book is published, but it'll just be out. So everybody will hopefully have their hands on a copy already.
2: Yeah, I hope so. Well,
0: let's start dishing. So give us uh, the elevator pitch overview of the book.
2: Well, The Homemakers is about a young woman. Her name is Hattie Cavanaugh, and she restores old houses with her father-in-law, Tug. She was widowed young, and she still works for her father-in-law's company, and, and it's set in Savannah. And when the book opens, she has had a disastrous flip of an old falling down house in downtown Savannah. Things haven't gone well. They've lost money on it. And she encounters a producer from California who does reality television. And he overhears her talking in a coffee shop about her latest flip and decides sort of spur of the moment. I've got an idea for a show. I'll call it the Home Wreckers. It'll be a great reality, you know, TV type show. And this, this young woman who's very um, outspoken and she's photogenic and I'll pair her with a designer and we'll call the show the homewreckers. And so he pitches the show to her and she's very reluctant, but she needs money. She's in a tight spot. And so she and her best friend, her best friend's name is, is Cassidy. Uh, they've been friends since parochial school in Savannah and so she and Cassidy get cast on this show, The Homewreckers and the, the network decides to expand the producer's idea and actually make it sort of like, it's like a cross between Flipper Flop and The Bachelor. Yes, yes. <laughs> so they pair her with this very slick, high-profile gorgeous designer from L.A., and they tell her at the onset, okay, now you have to buy the house to fix up, uh, which is comes as a huge shock to Hattie. She thought, you know, on those shows, she just believed that, you know, the network buys these houses. But that's not actually how it works, it turns out. So she finds out about an old house, a beach house on Tybee Island, And she scrapes up every last dime she has. She hawks her engagement ring, which is an important thing. And she buys this house and stuff happens.
0: And stuff happens. That's Mm. for sure. (laughs) So I want to... Know a little bit because I know that you kind of like write by the seat of your pants a lot. But uh, I think combining a an HGTV type show with a reality show like The Bachelor couldn't have just come to your brain. Did you have What kind of research did you do to pull those together?
2: Well, it did. You know, I was watching an HGTV show. I don't know if it was The Fixer Upper, which, by the way, I had that title long before Chip and Joe showed up in Waco. But I was watching one of those shows, and I thought, you know, I love to write about, and my fans like those kinds of books that have what my former editor called house porn. Um, And I thought, what if I write about a a protagonist who um, is fixing up old houses in Savannah, and she buys an old house out at Tybee Island, and cross that with um, a dating kind of show. And so for the research for the book, unfortunately, I had to do the research during COVID, during lockdown. And a lot of shows, a lot of those shows were shut down or they had closed sets. Most of them were closed down. So I couldn't go actually watch a a show being filmed for the research. So I kind of had to do my research by the seat of the pants. I did talk to a a woman here in Atlanta, uh, Anita Corsini. She and her husband, Ken um, have a show on HGTV and I talked to her about that. And I, you know, um, so I talked, I talk to people.
0: That's right. You, you know, a lot of people.
2: And if I so, don't know, I have no problem calling them up and asking them stupid questions.
0: <laughs> I'm sure they'd love hearing from you. Okay. The other thing I, that strikes me about this book is like so many of your others, um, your characters are just so well-developed and, and and just so... You can't help but love them all they're good and all they're bad, but this one seemed to be at, at a new level. I, I don't know if it was the setting or what it was, but they really did. So, But can you talk to us about some of these characters and where the germ for them came from? I'm talking like Hattie, Cass, Mo, Tug, Rebecca. My favorite, Zenobia.
2: Ah, uh, yeah, Zenobia. Well, Hattie... Just came to me and I knew from the beginning that she had married her high school sweetheart young and that he'd been killed in a, in a motorcycle accident, a hit and run motorcycle accident. I knew that her best friend from parochial school, they'd gone all through Catholic schools in Savannah was Cassidy. I knew that, uh, Hattie's folks split up. When she was in her early teens and her father got involved in a scandal, he actually stole money from a nonprofit charity. And so when her parents split up, her father goes to prison and her mother, it's a huge scandal and her mother to escape the scandal moves away to Florida and Hattie doesn't want to go. She wants to stay right where she is. And so she goes to live with Cass and her mom. And her mom is Zenobia and Zenobia is basically runs Cavanaugh and Sons, the house, uh, the construction company. And she's a tart ton African American mama who says what she thinks. And yes. um, she was fun to write. And Cass is, was fun to write. And then the, the television producer, Mo Lopez, I liked, you know, I, I fall in love with my characters. Except for the bad guys. And even sometimes the bad guys worm their way into my good graces. I'm always surprised when that happens.
0: They're sometimes redeemable.
2: They are sometimes redeemable. The sort of the arch villain of the book is Rebecca. She's a network executive that's making the decisions and who, who basically is calling the shots on this show and saying, you know, let's spice it up. Let's play up the relationship, even though it's, It's not really a real one between Hattie and the California, the LA designer they bring in very high profile. His name is Trey Bartholomew and he's a pretty boy. And Um, has a
0: really fun nickname throughout the book, which I won't give away.
2: Yes. Yes, he does. And that's a little bit about it. You know, Savannah, I've lived there and worked there. I started my newspaper career there out of right out of college Savannah's one of these places where, you know, family money and family names still mean something, but there are lots of secrets and scandals still there. So it's a great place. It's a great place to write about because it's very, it's very intriguing. And so, you know, I wanted Hattie. There's a whiff of scandal that's been attached to her. And so when she marries Hank, her now her late husband, she takes his name immediately because she doesn't she don't want to have her father's name because he right. was, you know, sent to prison.
0: He was in the big house. Yeah. Okay, so I've noticed been noticing through the last several books they kind of go back to your beginning roots and you seem to have a fascination with cold case deaths. Is there something you need to tell us? <laughs>
2: I know. Uh, I think I'm like. I mean, cold cases, murder cases are a hot thing right now. True crime is a hot thing right now. But I've always been interested in it, and um, since I was a little girl, my I used to go to my grandparents every Sunday for dinner, and my mother's only brother was a was a police officer. He was a detective, and later later on, assistant chief of police in St. Pete. And he would talk about cases that he was um, investigating. And I was a big newspaper reader from, you know, from the time I could hold a newspaper. And I was interested in crime. And so I would read these crime stories and he would talk about cases. And so that and I read Nancy Drew, of course, like every other Mm -hmm. girl my age. And I think... um, I think everybody, um, I think that just kind of was part of my DNA. So when I went to journalism school, I was interested in crime reporting. I did some crime reporting as a journalist. And cold cases kind of got into my blood. I uh, When I wrote Sunset Beach, has an old cold case that is actually loosely based on a very well-known unsolved murder here in, in Atlanta. And I just transferred that. That case to um, Savannah. And for if there's anybody listening who's a cold case buff, the real case was called uh, Mary Shotwell Little, who disappeared from Atlanta's first mall and was never heard from again. That case has never been solved. And I wrote stories about that over the years. And that story loosely, loosely inspired the plot of Sunset Beach. And so with this case, I didn't know how the murder was going to happen. I knew that there would be a body somewhere. And so I started thinking about that. And, you know, I never know if it's life imitating art or art imitating life. But in 2020, we bought and started restoring um, an old beach cottage on Tybee Island. That's if I have a hobby, that's what it is. (laughs) I don't play golf. I don't play tennis. I play house. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) So
2: we bought this uh, house and we started working on it with our contractors. And they were tearing out the back wall of a downstairs bathroom that had termite damage and the whole wall had to come out. And it was the the wall of a bathroom. And the contractors called me over one day and said, look what we just found in the wall behind this old um, razor blade slot. And it was a woman's billfold, and it's it had been there. It turns out since 1954, and it had the woman's all of her her ID. It had her social security card. It had her uh, her. She was a military spouse. Her husband was in the Navy, and he was at sea. It had family pictures, and um, so I did a quick internet search, and I found out that Melba, whose wallet we found. Melba had lived in the house only one year, 1954, and she had been dead for some years when I found that wallet. But uh, And I found her obituary online, but I couldn't find, I knew she had grown children who were in their 50s and 60s because I found her obituary. And that night I put on Facebook or Instagram, I think, hey, I found this wallet and it's so interesting and I'm trying to track down her family, if they're her survivors. And um, by the time I woke up the next morning, somebody had given me contact information for her son and daughter. Uh, And it's a long story, but I did talk to them. They had no idea how that wallet got in the wall, but I thought, okay, now this is interesting. What if that wallet in the wall turns out to belong to a woman who disappeared 17 years earlier? And what if it's in uh, Hattie's beach house that she is working on? And what if the wallet belongs to a beloved high school teacher who had befriended Hattie in the years after her father left and, and, and was understanding and talked to her about this kind of stuff. And so then the question is, well, and the woman's name is Lanier. And I'll tell you, I wasn't even thinking about this when I was writing it. I thought I was stealing the name of a friend of ours. Our friend Patty um, Henry has a friend whose name is Lanier, and I've always liked that name. So I thought, well, I'll borrow Lanier's name for my character, the missing school teacher. Um, she's 25 years old, and her name is Lanier Reagan. And she's married to um, a very successful high school football coach in Savannah at the... Um, local prep Catholic prep boys prep school. But as it turns out, when I was doing the copy edits, I went, oh, my gosh, the middle name, Melba's name, actually, was Lanier.
0: Oh, I didn't know that part.
2: I'd forgotten about it until I found the pictures of the wallet because I did. The family came down, and they they got the wallet, and we did a little thing on, on the local news in Savannah. Yep. And then I have another dear friend whose middle name is Lanier. So, And Lanier is a very well-known name in in Georgia. You know, Sidney Lanier was the Poet Laureate of Georgia. But it's one of those quirky things where you're like, wow, is this the universe whispering in my ear?
0: Could totally have been. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This this is such a minor part of your story, but... I actually had to go and research about razor blade slots in walls because I had never heard about that before, and I thought, yeah. "Oh, that's got to be made up." But no, nope, nope, it's a real yeah, and thing.
2: And the razor blade slot in the wall, bathroom wall at our house, was the size of a tissue dispenser. So uh, that's, I mean, uh, we have we've redone about five or six old houses over the years, and I have i think we've had them in like at least two houses in the bathroom medicine cabinets. When you tear out the old bathroom medicine cabinets that are recessed into the wall, that's where you see them. And I mean, why, I guess you didn't throw them in the trash because then you'd cut yourself.
0: Right. It makes sense I mean, now. But... Yeah,
2: I'd die of lockjaw, I guess. I don't know.
0: <laughs> lockjaw. <laughs> okay, so the, the wallet is just one example of how you really – are so good at putting yourself on the page and I wanted to talk about some of the locations in the home records because there's so many Tybee Island and Savannah spots that you feature in there and they're all real but I, and I love reading about them since I've been there so yeah. it's kind of cool for um for me having been there but also people who dream about going to that part of the country, places like the Crystal Beer Parlor and the mm-hmm. the Tybee Sign, the landmark Lighthouse Pizza, and especially the Sunday Cafe. And I'm not yeah. going to say anything, about that scene in the Sunday Cafe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, how do you decide what you'll put in there? How does it just come to you as you're writing?
2: I, it just happens. Um, I, you know, setting is really important to me and to my, all my books. I want my I want to put the reader right in my story. I want them to. Feel the humidity on their skin and I want them to smell the, the marsh mud, the pluff it's called. I want, I want them to um, see the Spanish moss hanging from the trees and I want them to hear palm fronds rustling in the wind at night and uh, the physical. The physical setting is important, too. So I wrote about some places in Savannah that, uh, you know, people know about. Crystal Beer Parlor has been around, I think, since the 40s. And um, that's where my cop, Makarowicz, I have a great, I love this cop. And he's named after after a family friend, Alan Makarowicz, who was not a cop. But Makarowicz meets with Lanier Reagan's daughter. When Lanier disappeared 17 years ago, she left behind her four-year-old daughter. And her daughter's been searching for answers ever since. So they meet at the Crystal Beer Parlor. They meet in a a square, a downtown square, where the pigeons are very aggressive.
1: (laughs) They um,
2: have coffee. Uh, Hattie and her friend Cass have coffee at Foxy Loxy. Which is a favorite haunt in downtown Savannah. And then the Tybee, the Tybee hot spots. Um, you know, there's only, I think, two pizza places on the island. Tybee's tiny. It's like a mile long, if that. So, you know, Lighthouse Pizza and Chews is the convenience store where everybody goes to get their beer and their, and their smokes. <laughs> And uh, Sunday Cafe is, you know, the nicest restaurant on the island, and we've had lots and lots of of good dinners at Sunday Cafe. It's our our family's favorite spot, and I thought, well, that's where Hattie and uh, Trey. Um, he's trying. He's making a hard effort to seduce Hattie. She's not quite sure whether she wants that to happen or not, but it's it's fun for her to be pursued. She does admit that. So they have a dinner at Sunday Cafe and the the scene where some of Trey's uh, fans are eavesdropping on them and actually photographing them. I had, I've had something like that happen while we were at dinner at, at Sunday Cafe. People, you know, not that I'm famous or anything, but people on the island know, oh, there's a writer who writes about, about this place. So more than once we've been having dinner at Sunday Cafe, and people have come over and said, Oh, are you the writer? Can we take our pictures with you? Or one time we were sitting at dinner and the people on that table behind us were talking about me. Oh, <laughs> nicely. <found> out- <laughs> yeah, they were. They were saying, Oh, she's a writer. You know, she wrote this book. So I turned around and I said, You know, I can hear you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they must yeah, have died.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> take, I want to put my readers, even if it's a place that I've made up, I want to put my readers in, in the moment right. of the book.
0: And you did that so well with this and in all of your writing. It's just so um, atmospheric and you really pull people in. So in addition to the places and the settings, you also uh, drop little Easter eggs with people's names and, and things. So you, you mentioned the, the police officers and where that came from. Yeah. But you've done like the Patty's, Patty Henry's son, Christy and right Will yeah. Harvey.
2: Yeah, um, I have a, a fictional television couple who are the stars of this fictional network, Will and Christy.
0: <laughs> Only
2: I've spelled Christy's name with a Y just so she won't get mad at me. Because <laughs> I described the real Will that I know is not, does not have the personality of Brussels sprouts, but, um, no, but the will in, uh, that Christine will is not what you would call a spectacularly fascinating guy. No, I can't even remember all the Easter eggs. I put them in there. I'll be searching for a name and I'll just think to myself, Oh, well, I'll drop blah, blah in there. And yeah. sometimes I forget I've done it until, you know, a, someone will come up to me at a signing and say, Hey, you put blah, blah in the book. And I'm like, Oh yeah. I don't remember that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, I did. Yes, I did.
2: Yes, I did. I mean, my children, my grandchildren have been in books. It's fun.
0: It is fun. And it's fun to read too, because I was like, boom. And I, I thought there was a little play on words with the um, initial name for the show called, um, what was it called? Saving Savannah.
2: Yes. Saving Savannah.
0: <laughs> That's good. I love it. So, This is just a little bit of a general question, but this book, like many of your others, really features strong women in in non-traditional jobs, and they just feel that they're exactly where they belong. But tell me why you think it's really still important to talk about women's strength in the stories.
2: You know, I write about Southern women. I've never lived outside the South, and I I hope my books appeal to people all over the country, all over the world. I need a, I need a character who's come through the fire, who, um, have, have had bad stuff happen to them and who have had to pick themselves up and reinvent themselves. And Hattie has had to do that on more than one occasion. You know, her family has basically dissolved and she goes and lives with her best friend's family. And then she marries the love of her life and his, his life is tragically cut short in a traffic accident. And she has to figure out a way to keep going, but not, you know, she's not so strong that she doesn't have a lot of things to overcome. And, and she's not so strong that she doesn't make mistakes. She does. We, I mean, I want my characters, I don't want cardboard two dimensional characters. So Hattie, yeah, Hattie's had a struggle and her, her friend, she and her late husband were fixing up a house of their own, uh, their first house that they bought together when he's killed. And her friend says, the clock's all stopped when Hank died at your house. You know, the kitchen, they had they started working on the kitchen and it just is left that way. And And I think we've all known people who have had those kinds of sudden tragedies and the clock stops.
0: And it does. It's a good place to start from in the book, though, too, because the the tragedy there and then everything after that is is moving forward, gaining strength and um, finding their way in a new new normal. Right. So so we haven't talked yet about 30. You've been in the business for 30 years This is your 30th novel. And some would say this is a quintessential Mary Kay Andrews book because it kind of goes back to your mystery roots. Mm -hmm. It's also a beach book. You get the heroine that you want to root for. You get the beach setting. You get the love stories. But in this one, you get all the home reno stuff that your fans love so much. They follow you like, ooh. So it, it really seems to have it all. And it's very fitting that this is your thirtieth book. And if it were a coffee, it would be called the Prime MKA Blend. (laughs) You've been doing this writing thing for a while now. Are you ready to jump in and do it full time yet?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, if it works out, I might might put my big toe in it and see, you know, see what happens. I'll quit my day job, (laughs) which I actually did 31 years ago against everyone's advice, by the way.
0: Oh, really? Oh, look how oh, yeah. that turned out.
2: <laughs> well, you know, I was writing in secret. I was working at full time as a newspaper reporter at the Atlanta Constitution. I had two young kids. My husband and I had not one, but two mortgages on our house. And I started trying to tunnel out of newspapers. So I started writing in secret at night. And when I sold my first book, I said to my editor, well, now I can quit my job. And he said, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. You know, you should just keep, you know. Don't, don't quit your day job, kid. And my husband did not want me to quit my day job. Um, it was, you know, it was security. I had benefits, all those things. But I just, it was time to go. And um, lots of people told me not to do it. But I, I guess I don't listen very well.
0: <laughs> well, sometimes that's the right path to take. <laughs>
2: Well, it would have been that or institutionalization for me. So.
0: Oh, no. Yeah. I don't think we'd want to know that one, that version no. of you. No. Mm-hmm. So, in, in seriousness, though, what do you think has changed the most over these 30 years since you've been in the spotlight, good and bad in publishing?
2: Well, virtually everything has changed. I mean, for one thing, the advent of um, digital books. E-readers. Um, when I first started out, every year or so, somebody would say, "Oh, they've invented this new thing. It's a it's an e-reader, and it's this big clunky thing you you haul around, and that's going to be the new wave of the future." And I can remember saying, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, that is never ever going to happen." Uh, but then it happened so fast, it, it sort of took everybody's breath away. That has changed dramatically. And of course, the, the advent of social media, where you are instantly available 24 hours a day to your readers, your fans, your enemies, your <laughs> everyone. And, you know, the publishing business itself has has shrunk. You know, there were 30 years ago, there were probably 10 Big time New York publishers, and now it's down to five. They've they've merged, and some of them have disappeared. Um, so that has changed dramatically. The you know it used to be when I started out, there were four national chains. There was Barnes and Nobles, Borders, or the other two, Walden Books and B Dalton. And each of those were smaller versions of either. Borders or Barnes and Noble. Now Borders has been gone for five or six years. Those other smaller national chains have gone away. Now there's still books a million. And for a long time, we were terrified that independent bookstores would go by the way. But the one good thing I can see in the past couple years is that indie bookstores, who I have such a I have such a loyalty to because they were the ones who championed my books in the beginning. They were the ones who, when nobody had ever heard of Kathy Trochak, said, hey, we like your books. Why don't you come and do a signing in Minneapolis? Or why don't you come and do a signing in Boulder, Colorado at a mystery bookstore? Um, And so, you know, I've I've seen a lot of treasured indies go under, but it's great. So many indies have found out how to navigate this new normal and how to reach out through social media and put books in the hands of readers, which is what we're all about.
0: Yes. And I think it's a great Testament also to all of you writers who who have been lifting them up and and partnering with them to offer signed copies of your book because i think that kind of thing is what helped get people through the pandemic i think it was really a treasure and there's just a renewed love of these indie bookstores that's just well you know
2: we yeah we're a mutual aid society they they need us and we need them right i don't want to see the world run by one giant conglomerate no no. Well, I don't think anybody wants to see that.
0: Nobody wants that. So mm-hmm. if it's okay, I think that people probably would like to hear from you about how you're doing. You've had a terrible yeah. year, and uh, I know a lot of people care about you, and hopefully you using your work and keeping your nose to the grindstone to keep going forward because you, like your characters, are a very strong woman, and I'm very impressed by how you have handled everything. But how's it going?
2: You know, we're taking it day by day. For those who don't know, my daughter Katie died of complications of COVID in February. She was fully vaxxed and boosted, and, but um, she had an underlying liver condition that no one knew about. She went into liver failure, and we thought she was going to be a liver uh, a good candidate for a liver transplant. And then she got COVID again, a second time, and just couldn't beat it. So. We're taking it one day at a time. People have been amazing i've gotten so many cards and letters, mass cards, miraculous medals uh ice cream gelato uh, <laughs> comfort foods, and sweet cards and notes so her children, my grandchildren, live just around the corner they're ten and twelve, and so that 's the focus of what we're concerned with and they have my son in law mark is a great guy. And his folks are are great and supportive. So and the kids' school is amazing. And the the, you know, this community of readers and fans have been so sweet and so supportive. And of course, my friends and fiction family have been amazing. They all came down to Atlanta to help out. (laughs) They all got put in on kitchen duty.
0: That's okay.
2: But for, we had a big open house after the after Katie's celebration of life, and they ended up in the kitchen making deviled eggs and filling plates and doing all the things. And And, you know, that that's the sign of really good friends.
0: Exactly. Yes. And I wouldn't have expected anything else from them. But just in case anybody is wondering, there's been some great outpouring of support for organizations and even a scholarship fund for your grandchildren that if people just go to your social media, they can learn more about it and participate if they feel like it. And do it. uh, Yes, do it for Katie. But also if there's anybody in your life who's been affected by all of this uh, thing, uh, you could do it in honor of them too. Because I think anything we do is just really important and really helpful. To others.
2: Yeah, Katie was passionate about helping people. She worked and volunteered for an organization in Atlanta called the Free Fridges. It's a mutual aid society. You just fix meals and put them in in the these refrigerators all over town, and people can take what they want. There's no paperwork. And you can you can look on my social media. There's a way to um, contribute monetarily to their wish list. Um, there's a great or, uh, organization, and they have them around the country, called Helping Mamas that Helps out women in need with diapers, formula, baby food, period products, Um, no kid hungry. So, you know, and really, we've just said, do something kind. Right. Just do something kind.
0: Yes. I'll leave that there. So let's switch just a little bit. And can you tell people what you are working on now?
2: I am working on, well, getting ready to go on book tour.
0: (laughs) Yes, that's true. (laughs) Mm
2: I've started working on another Christmas book. I got the idea, gosh, back in the fall when Katie was sick, actually. Writing helped take my mind off the worries. So I started working on a book. It's about a woman whose family owns a Christmas tree farm in the same North Carolina town where the Santa suit was set. And she and her brother go to New York City and set up a Christmas tree stand uh, in Greenwich Village, and they sell Christmas trees. The family's been doing this for 30 years, but this year my character, whose name is Carrie, gets recruited to go to. And so they live in a camper uh, on a street corner in in Greenwich, in the West Village, and they sell Christmas trees. And, she, you know, things happen. There's a mystery man. And it's, um, it's fun. And I've, you know, done some research on growing Christmas trees, and we'll see. That'll be Christmas 23.
0: I cannot wait. And I know there's lots of other readers who can't as well. So you are about to embark on a kind of a ambitious tour. Yeah. You're going to go a lot of places.
2: Yeah. And and including Cleveland.
0: Yes, indeed. Friends in Fiction, the full gang will be on tour in a couple of stops coming up. So
2: one of them will be here in Cleveland. Yeah, we'll be in Cleveland with Ron. And uh, Ron, you're coming to Menasquah, New Jersey, too, right?
0: I I am. I am. So I'll be joining you there.
2: Yeah, so they can find, people can find all the details of my um, book tour, where I'm going to be, and all that stuff on my website and on my social media, marykandrews.com. They can see photos of what I'm doing, (laughs) my faux bows and my fake ancestors and my junking finds. And right now, it's sort of relentless self-promotion for the new Mm -hmm. book.
0: Well, that's part of the game now. And I think that's one of the things that's probably changed in 30 years. It's a lot of it falls on you and your own team.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I when I started out, you know, your publisher would ask the books, the bookstore would maybe put an ad in the newspaper and maybe they would get a notice in the town's newspaper calendar about coming events. But that was about it for publicity for a book tour or a a book signing. And maybe the bookstore, if it was big enough, had a newsletter that literally a a physical newsletter that went out. If you were lucky, when you went out of town, maybe a media escort would pick you up at the airport and take you to the television station or the newspaper (laughs) for interviews. None of that happens anymore.
0: (laughs) There actually was a library event recently where there was a media escort and I was like, it's like a dinosaur came in the door. It was, yeah. I hadn't seen them in years.
2: Yeah. Nowadays it's me and my, um, and Waze on my phone. And then the little tiny gremlin last year, we had a, I think a Kia that we called the Smurf mobile.
0: A blue <laughs> Kia. Get you there. Yeah. So congratulations on the book again. And I know that your adoring fans are going to eat this one up. It's really, really quintessential Mary Kay Andrews. And it's just so good. So congratulations.
2: Well, thank you, Ron. I hope I'll see lots of folks out on the book tour trail.
0: Absolutely. Well, you know I, that I adore you, and everybody that's listening is going to want to gobble the book up. It does exceed reader expectations. It's Basically, it's a hell of an accomplishment of 30 years, 30 years I and 30 believe. novels.
2: I know. I can't believe I'm old enough to have written 30 novels.
0: I know, but as we all know, you're really just getting started. So thanks so much for being here with me today.
2: The book goodness. is out
0: this week, and to quote Mary Kay, buy my book, damn it.
2: Absolutely. Thanks, Ron.
0: Thank you all for tuning in for a new episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. It's truly my honor to represent Mary Kay, Patty, Kristen, and Christy, and I can't wait for more. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Charleston Coffee Roasters, for their generous support. Show our sponsors some love by following them on Facebook and Instagram and subscribing to their email newsletter. Remember to use the code COFFEYWITHFRIENDS for 20% off bagged coffees at Charleston Coffee Roasters. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode.
1: And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Vita
2: Studios. Connect your voice to the world.